We are so excited to bring you an interview with Guidon Levy. He is a columnist for the newspaper Haaretz and a member of its editorial board and the author of the books Twilight Zone, Life and Death Under the Israeli Occupation and The Punishment of Gaza. He's very prolific. He writes at Haaretz three times a week. So definitely check out his work. Guidon Levy. Thank you so much for joining the show. It's my pleasure. I wanted to ask you about how your ideas uh, and your view of the world of Israel-Palestine changed. Because you once said, I was a full member of the nationalistic religious orgy. We were all under the feeling that the whole project of Israel is an existentialistic danger. We all felt that another Holocaust is around the corner. So what made you change your mind on that? First of all, let me remind you that I was 14 when this orgy took place, namely at 67. And at, at 14, you are totally brainwashed. You really know only what you were told. And we were told all those myths about being uh, always in existential threat. And we felt really that the victory in 67 was like a messiah miracle and we were so grateful for this everyone in israel at those times and we didn't ask any questions we didn't see any palestinians we just saw a huge victory but i was 14 so i should be forgiven for this so what changed your view it was a gradual process which namely and basically was starting to travel to the occupied territories, which very few Israelis do. And I started it quite incidentally. It's not that I had a mission or I had a plan. No, not at all. I had a column in Haaretz in which every week I used to go to some different locations. And then I started, a friend told me, let's see some uprooted olive trees in the West Bank of an old lady. And all the rest is history. I found out very quickly that, first of all, that's the real drama of Israel in the backyard. And secondly, that there is hardly anyone to cover it. And then gradually, I decided that this will be my professional mission. And then gradually, my views radicalized. And can you talk about the phenomenon of uh, checkpoints? Because I I saw in a documentary that you were called seeing... um, Israeli officers like not letting an ambulance through a checkpoint. Uh, what? How? How common is this phenomenon? No, it's uh, like the sun shines in the morning in the West Bank. It's a reality of nonstop checkpoints. Some of them are permanent. Some of them are uh, temporary. You never know where will you stop. You never know how much time will you spend. You never know if you will not be arrested. You never know who will value your time. You know, people have some timetable in their lives, but Palestinians are not considered to be people or human beings. And therefore, you can lose a day at work, a day at the university, a day at the clinic, only because some bored soldier decided to take his time. And by the way, ever since the war started in Gaza, the checkpoints are much more often and much more brutal. There are many roads now in the West Bank which are totally closed for Palestinians. And in many cases, they have to go impossible roads 
uh, to, to get to their destinations. You've said in the past that there are three things that let Israelis live in peace, in their minds at least, with the occupation. Uh, the belief that they're the chosen people, the belief that they're victims, and the dehumanization of Palestinians. Can you elaborate on those three things and also how they interconnect? Yeah, and unfortunately, nothing of those three changed ever since the time I said so, because it was a few years ago when I said it in a lecture. Look, you cannot maintain such an occupation, such a brutal reality in your backyard without believing in some kind of, of lies that you invent to yourself in order to make it easier for you. Because finally, we are all human beings with emotions. And I don't think that a, a normal human being can live in peace with such a brutal dictatorship in its backyard, even if you don't see it, but you know it's there in your backyard, just half an hour away from your home. So you have to live in denial. Otherwise, you cannot, you cannot stand it. So first of all, Israel uh, um, covered itself, protected itself with all kinds of walls of denial. Above all, the media, which doesn't show anything right now, anything from Gaza. You can hardly see Gaza on Israeli TV or Israeli newspapers. And you can hardly see the occupation in, in Israeli mainstream media. But that's not enough. Okay, so you don't see anything and you don't want to know anything and all those agencies help you not to know. That's not enough. You have to have also some kind of ideology, some kind of explanation, some kind of justification. So the first thing you mentioned was uh, really being uh, the chosen people. We got it with the milk of our mothers. We were told from childhood that even though most of us are secular or we think we are seculars, that uh, that we are the chosen people. And the, 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 the examples, the expressions are endless. Uh, let's take the international law. The international law was born after the Holocaust, after the World War II, and Israel obviously supports the international law. It's something very important. It should be implemented everywhere except of one place, Israel. For Israel, it's, it shouldn't be implemented. Why? Because we are a special case. You cannot deal us with the same tools that you deal with Syria, Iraq, Russia, all kind of occupying regimes. No, we are not one of them. We are something special. And you see it again and again. You can also not tell us what to do because we know better. If you met Israelis, you always feel this arrogance. We know better. Why? Because we are better. Because what do you know, folks? I mean, well, Americans, Germans, French, Swedes, who are you to tell us? Secondly is obviously this uh, notion of uh, victimization. As the late Golda Meir phrased it in a wonderful way, after the Holocaust, the Jews have the right to do whatever they want. In other words, we are the ultimate victims of history, but not only the ultimate victims, we are the only victims. Try to tell an Israeli that there were some other Holocausts. He will be deeply offended. You cannot call the Armenian Holocaust a Holocaust because Holocaust is only ours and we are the biggest victims, like being such victims enable us 
to do whatever we want and nobody can stop us. The chosen people, the only victims. And then the third one is uh, the dehumanization of Palestinians. Right. And that's the most obvious one because you cannot colonize and you cannot uh, brutally govern another people with the belief that they are equal human beings to, to you. Because then who gave you this right to treat them like, like I don't even want to say animals because animals are treated better. Right. Absolutely. Who gave you the right? So the only way to live with it in peace is to tell you and to keep on telling yourself that they are not human beings like us. The Palestinians don't love their children. Therefore, they are not, it's not a big deal for them to see them dying. They were born to kill. They have nothing in their mind except of pushing the Jews to the ocean. That's the nature. They are barbarians. I mean, that's the nature. It's not that it's for a certain purpose. They, that's them. And they are not like us. We are human. We are human beings. And that's the way to treat them because then they, there's no question of human rights. If they are not human, so why do they get, deserve human rights? You see it, by the way, in any occupation. I mean, obviously the Germans, they humanize the Jews, but also in many other cases, you cannot maintain an occupation without dehumanizing the other. Like Algeria. Yeah. French with Algeria. Yeah. Everywhere. 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 Yeah. In Africa, look how they treated uh, the colonies in Africa. Total right. dehumanization, because otherwise, how can you stand it and right. explain it to yourself? Well, you mentioned that uh, Israeli TV is not showing the reality inside Gaza right now. What is it saying about Gaza? No, it's not saying, and we know it's all about framing. If you open now, now Israel is... Uh, 24 hours, seven days a week, only in news programs. There are no other programs. So it's an ongoing uh, broadcast, which shows almost only either the agony of the families of the hostages, or the hostages coming back, or the soldiers in Gaza, or telling us about the achievements in Gaza. Now there is the pause, so you see less from Gaza, but only the army. You will see once in a while some very small piece of one, two minutes showing some ruins in Gaza, just, you know, to as a lip service here, we showed Gaza, but it's not really showing Gaza. We know very well that everything is also about framing. And this is always framed as something marginal, as something that we have to show you, but let's get back to business. The bomb that fall on a house in the south and scratch the terrace, that's the story of the day. By all means, not 5,000 children who were killed in Gaza. This is not in our agenda. So when it, it's being done systematically, that's brainwash. As we are recording this, the truce is holding, more hostages are being released, but... You're seeing now Netanyahu facing calls from his own government, including Itamar Ben-Gavir, uh, the uh, far-right national security minister, that if there is a long-term ceasefire, then uh, he will resign and, and try to bring down the government. Can you talk about the, the uh, calls right now inside Israel for this 
war to continue? And do you think there's any prospect that Netanyahu would ever accept a permanent ceasefire? First of all, we have to face it that the national sentiment right now, and polls show it, is in favor of continuing the war and in very clear majority. Israel is, after the 7th of October, feel that they cannot get back to, to normality before punishing Gaza and punishing Hamas and smashing Hamas, crashing Hamas. That's almost common in Israeli discourse that this should happen. The dilemma is, obviously, the hostages, which is the second goal of this war, until now we uh, succeeded to cheat ourselves that we can have both. Israelis, by the way, that's a very strong theme also about being Jewish and democratic. We always want to have them both. So here we want both and still, until now it was possible and maybe also went to the right direction because I believe that the attacks on Hamas maybe were a leverage to, to get the hostages back, at least past part of them. But there will be the moment in which Israel will have to choose. And that's the moment you were referring to, I guess. We are very close to there. Now here, the emotions are very contradictory because on one hand, most of the Israelis want the hostages back. That's no doubt. It's very deep-rooted in Israeli society. We want them all back. But on the other hand, we will not be ready to be the suckers who give up Hamas and give up punishing Hamas at any price. And therefore, it's not about Ben Gvir. It's about the entire uh, discourse in Israel. And here, I would expect the United States to pay a crucial role. And in a very disappointing uh, way, I can see that uh, President Biden, who until now was really wonderful, really preventing Israel from, from crimes of war, from more crimes of war, but I don't hear a very clear message from the American president that Israel should stop this war. By all means, not. And you know, if Biden doesn't say no, why would Netanyahu say no? He got a carte blanche to continue. Yes, in certain limits, not to kill too many civilians. I mean, 20,000 were killed already, but not too many. I hope that the, my hope is really more about the Americans than others. The Americans should be very clear about it, but they are not. And how much, though, has the war on Hamas actually endangered the hostages already? No, until now, I don't think it endangers. There is one family that Hamas declared that they are killed, maybe in bombs. There was another one who was... Uh, killed by bombs, but by and large, until now, we didn't reach the critical moment in which you have to choose. And maybe, and here I must uh, agree with the, the majority, which is very rare, that uh, maybe the military pressure was a leverage to, to, to release the hostages until now, because the Hamas leaders wanted some kind of pause and they could get it only by releasing hostages. But from now on, it will be much more complicated. But there was an agreement uh, 
or there was talk of an, of an agreement very early on where Hamas wanted its own prisoners released, uh, women and children, uh, brokered by Qatar over a month ago. And Israel rejected that, chose to continue, chose to launch the ground invasion, cho chose to attack Al-Shifa Hospital. Um, isn't that the only fact here that Israel just did not want, didn't care about its own hostages, it just wanted to continue attacking Gaza? Yes, and then I guess Netanyahu realized that the public pressure to release hostages is so big that he had to, to change its strategy, his strategy, because the pressure grew and grew. In any case, he's in a very weak position right now in Israeli public opinion. And the most of the people are just waiting to the war to be over to, to get to the next stage and getting rid of him one way or the other. But right now, he had to, to listen to the public and the public was very clear about the choices. I think that if it would have depend on this government and only on this government, they would rather go and crash Hamas or what they call crashing Hamas over releasing the hostages. Right. Don't forget there is also a question, sorry, there's a question also of identity. I don't want to exaggerate about it, but I don't want to ignore it. Most of the hostages are from Kibbutzim, from the left, from the peace camp. This is not the constituency of, of Netanyahu. I don't want to blame him that he cares less about them. No, he's not such a cynical, I hope. But still, it is in the air that the hostages are from the other camp, so to say. And you see also that the majority of those who prefer releasing hostages are coming from the opposition. And in the coalition, the majority wants war over the hostages. And we've also seen some of the relatives of the hostages um, and the relatives of Vivian Silver, who was killed, who was a leftist peace activist. We've seen them. I mean, I remember seeing her son say something like, this is exactly what she was fighting against or was fearing what happened, which is so tragic. Um, and we've heard um, the son of uh, whose parents were killed. He was saying that there needs to be peace. So it's interesting uh, that some of the most vocal peace voices are people who are related to the hostages. I'm sure that doesn't represent all of them, but. Sure. Those from the kibbutzim, for sure. Those from the party and the soldiers obviously are different, uh, have different backgrounds. But in the kibbutzim, mainly the elder people, they were all old socialists, social mm -hmm. democrats who believed in peace. Some of them were activists, like uh, Vivian, but also others who really had contacts with Gaza, who helped uh, Palestinian patients to get to hospitals in Israel. Really very dear people. But you know, uh, uh, when it comes to such an attack, uh, you cannot be selective. Uh, they all paid. There is another point in this context that many, 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 unfortunately, many from the peace camp changed after the 7th of October. And I see a shift that I have never seen before. There is a shift of Israel going more to the right in any war and more nationalistic and militaristic and all this. This is in any war and happened also now. But even the small core of the peace camp is shifting 
This is very tragic. They feel that the Palestinians betrayed them almost personally. And that's very worrying and very sad. On what grounds do they, do they feel betrayed by Palestinians? For example, those activists who did everything for Gaza, for people in Gaza, and then the Palestinians came to their homes and kidnapped them and murdered them. They think that this barbaric attack, that even Israel does not deserve such an attack, that even the occupation doesn't deserve such barbarism, and they personally don't, don't deserve it, they saw also quite a wide support among the Palestinians, obviously, in the attack. Look, for them, it's a source of hope. Was this different from, did this happen with the intifadas as well, that it, the left became smaller and lost people in the ranks, or is this different? It happened before, absolutely. The only difference this time is, in many aspects, is that the humiliation of Israel was never like this. You know, the Intifada buses exploded. It was very painful. But Israel didn't feel humiliated. You know, with all the reputation of the Israeli intelligence and the barrier that they built for billions of dollars and the technology that nobody can really beat, and then a few hundred Palestinians on motorcycles conquered the south of Israel within hours with the most primitive weapons. This humiliation they never saw before. And that's a major factor also by this need to punish them. How can you do it to us? You wrote a, a piece shortly after this happened. Israel can't imprison two million Gazans without paying a cruel price. So this attack, it seems you're saying, is obviously you're saying is not justifiable, but is also inevitable or at least not surprising or understandable. So how does Israel deal with this? I mean, you've said in interviews that you can't bomb Hamas out of existence. So is there any hope for Anything, any peace, any one-state solution? I know you call the current state one state. It's just an apartheid state. Is there any hope for one state with equal rights? Not for the, for, for the short run. I don't see any hope from any direction because you don't have any partners for anything, neither among the Palestinians nor among Israel. The, the, the prospects for it, uh, zero because also the international community doesn't seem to pay more than again lip services and doesn't have doesn't show any signs that it's going to really be committed in actions, not in the in talkings, but in actions to impose some kind of solution or at least some kind of progress toward the solution. So who is going to pick it up? Israelis will not wake up one morning and say, oh, this occupation, this apartheid, we don't like it so much. Let's put an end to it. This will never happen. It will only happen when Israelis will pay for it, will be punished for it. And this is not going to happen because the international community basically supports the occupation. The United States supports the occupation actively, passively, all the big sentences and the slogans we know 
they led to nowhere. And America knows if, if America would have liked to put an end to the occupation, they, knew, they could have known very well how to do it. They never tried it. Can you believe that Russia, after a few weeks of invading uh, Crimea, was, was exposed to sanctions and Israel, after 55 years of occupation, nobody even mentions the possibility of sanctions over Israel? How could the U.S. end the occupation? If they wanted to. What is easier than this? Israel depends so much on the United States. The aid is so generous, more than any country in the world. God knows why, but Israel gets more than any other country in the world. And believe me, Israel is not the poorest country or the country that deserves. But that's the choice of the United States. And that's your own choice. You have to decide to whom. But why not to condition? It was never conditioned. This is so outrageous. You claim, I mean, the United States claim that it has some interests, that the two-state solution is the plan and should be implemented. Why not to condition that the settlements are a big danger? Why not to, for example, condition the aid by at least stopping building settlements. You want our aid, you have to stop this criminal project. What is so complicated this? No American president, no administration went for it. They always say it's terrible, many condemnations. What did you do for it? Nothing. Yeah. Hamas has changed its positions in the last uh, 15 years or so. It deferred to the Palestinian Authority on negotiating with Israel. It changed its charter to say that it would accept a Palestinian state inside the West Bank and Gaza. And tacitly, although not formally, but tacitly, that's a way of saying they're going to recognize Israel's borders outside of the Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza. Was there ever any debate inside Israel about trying to engage with that and uh, seeing that as an opening for a uh, long-term peace uh, for, uh, for a two-state solution? If there was any debate, now it's over. And you can't even mention a possibility of, of negotiating with Hamas. This is out of the question. I mean, Israeli society sees now Hamas as a Nazi organization. And with the Nazis, you don't negotiate anything. Now, there were times in which there was some, some discussion. But I guess you know that in Israel, there are not many political discussions anymore in the last decades. Nobody speaks about the long future. Nobody speaks about everyone is only in the present. Nobody asks an Israeli, where do you want to go? Where are you aiming? Where is your state aiming? What is the end game? What is your goal? What will be here in 20 years time, in 30 years time? What's the... Even, you know what, you will not be implemented. What do you want to happen here? You will not get answers except of the very right extremists who will tell you very clear to expel the Palestinians from here. And then we'll have a real Jewish state between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. That's our plan. We are aiming there. But that's, until now, a minority. All the rest have no plan. And, and there is no debate. There is no debate. I remember times in the 70s 
when the joke was that two Israelis share three views. And arguments about the future of the territories, the future of the occupation, were at any Friday evening dinners, family dinners, everyone was talking and fighting and shall we return the territories, shall we not? We didn't even know to, how to call the territories, occupied, maintained. This is all gone. We don't speak about it. You come and see campaigns to the elections. The occupation is not present at all. Election after election, people speak about the most minor and stupid issues, and the occupation is not on the table at all, not in favor, not against, doesn't exist. So if you were the president of the United States right now, what would you do to make Israel not just stop settlements, but would there be any way to make them become a one state with equal rights? Is that something that would even be possible? I think that Israel will have no other choice. Israel cannot go on. I mean, you can talk and be very proud and speak about the independence, but by the end of the day, Israel, without the American aid, both the military one and even the economically one, and the diplomatic one in the international arena, Israel is lost. And when you are serious and you say, listen, we want to continue to give you all the aid that you got until now, but you have to follow some of our, you have to, to meet some of our requests. Everything has price in life, except of, except of the American aid. This is priceless. I mean, this is for free. I think nothing could have been easier than this because no government can stand it. Okay, they, they can have very patriotic rhetorics. But by the end of the day, if you need now new uh, missiles for the Iron Dome and American president tells you, no, you are not getting it if you don't do one, two, three, you cannot live without more missiles for the Iron Dome. You have to listen to what America is telling you, but America is not telling you anything. Gideon, you have friends and contacts in Gaza. Um, what have you been hearing from them throughout? I tell you the Gaza truth. I am, I'm too ashamed to call them. I didn't talk to anyone in Gaza. You're too ashamed. I, I, yes, I, 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 cannot, I cannot talk to them. I don't know how, how, who is alive and who is dead who is homeless and who is sick. I don't dare to, I don't know if it's possible to call because for long times it was also hard to. Yeah. I, I didn't talk to anyone in Gaza ever since it started. I, I mentally, I, I, I cannot, what shall I tell them? That my heart goes to them. I mean, yeah. it is so hollow. It's my people, my soldiers who do it. And I will call and say, listen, my heart goes to you. If I could go there, Great, but don't forget also that I've not been in Gaza for the last 15 years because Israel doesn't let any Israeli journalist to go to Gaza. So most of the contacts are also much weaker now because it's 15 years that I've not seen none of my friends there. My drivers, you know how much I care about my two drivers, the taxi drivers. We were for years every week meeting and having such a great time there. I have no clue if they are alive or dead, and I don't dare to call them. And I remember during the 2014 Israeli assault on Gaza, I remember during that time, you had to have bodyguards inside Israel going around. Is that still the case now? No, no, by all means, no. Thanks, thanks God, because I didn't enjoy it. But 
I don't know what happened either. I, I don't know to explain it, but I, I, I feel so safe this time. I go in the streets, nobody spits at me, nobody even makes remarks. I don't know to explain it. I mean, I have some explanations, but they are not very convincing. I don't know. But no need at all. Also, no no threats but in the email. In the, I mean, hmm. really, something went wrong. This is very clear. I, I, I was wrong somewhere that all of a sudden they accept me or they <laughs> gave up on me or I don't know what to say. I don't know. Here in the U.S., um, polls show that young people are overwhelmingly against what Israel is doing. And that kind of generational shift is pretty common. Generally, the, you know, the youth are going to be on the side, you know, more on the side of human rights than their elders. That's just, but in Israel, that's not the case. And it seems to me that the younger generation actually is even more extreme than older generations. Do you agree with that? And, and if so, I mean, how do you explain that? I totally agree with it. Uh, it's, it's very interesting because usually young people go more radical than the parents to both directions. And, uh, and uh, the left is always more attractive, you know, intellectually for sure, but also morally. What we see here that uh, generation after generation, they become more ignorant about the conflict. They know nothing. They really know nothing. You will be surprised. I can ensure you that any average American student in university or in college, for sure any European, knows much more about the conflict than an average Israeli. We live in denial. And therefore, we don't want to know anything, not only about life in Gaza today, about the whole history, the context. The context is not present. And secondly, uh, you know, there are so many incitement agencies which work. And now we have also the social media, which is very destructive. And this is new. So the, the young generation is not only not very promising, because this combination of ignorance and nationalism is a very, very explosive one. And this is what we face. And, and again, I must uh, emphasize the first one, the ignorance. It's, it's, I'm amazed again and again how little there are obviously very knowledgeable young people in Israel. Yeah? But the majority, they know nothing. And they don't want to know nothing. And they hate the Arabs like hell. So you, you said that you haven't been to Gaza, but you have recently, uh, am I correct, that you went to Tul Karm? Uh, in the West Bank? I, would, I go every week in the last 32 years, either to Gaza or to the West Bank. In the last 16 years, only to the West Bank. I was last week in Tulkarem. I was day, the day before yesterday in Ramallah. I do it every week. I didn't miss, I think, one week in the last 35 years. And 42 people, I believe, uh, have been killed in um, Tulkarem. Right. Can you talk about the latest visit and also, you know, the, the circumstances in which these people were killed? So I, I would like to add, because one week later, as I told you, I was in Ramallah. This will be published tomorrow. And in Ramallah, there were 31 people killed in the same period of time, with a big difference. In the area of Tulkarem, there is a very militant resistance. And most of the people who were killed were really uh, armed 
and we are, were really resisting, resisting the, the raids of the army, mainly in the refugee camps. In Turkarem, there are two refugee camps, No Shams and the Turkarem refugee camp. In Ramallah area, there are no armed Palestinians, and none, none of those who were killed was armed. This was really an outcome of happy trigger soldiers who feel under the atmosphere of the war when there is no interest whatsoever, no media, nothing, that they can go wild. I have a video, for example, of a group of border police guys who shoot two cars one after the other. They know nothing about those cars. They shoot tens of bullets into those cars obviously killed both drivers, but they had no clue, and the, those cars were driving very slowly. I have the video. Just, you know, maybe they were bored. Maybe they looked for action. Maybe they are jealous of their friends in Gaza who can shoot and kill. And maybe because they knew that nothing will happen to them, and you know what? Nothing will happen to them, and they just killed. It's, it's terrible scenes, and it's under the radar. Nobody cares about it. In abroad, there is some more interest in the West Bank than in Israel. In Israel, it doesn't exist. If Gaza doesn't interest, you think that Turkarem interests anybody? Until it will explode in our faces. People don't realize that this is going to create more violence. No. They just ignore it. Yeah. They're in denial. Yeah. Yeah. They think they're all terrorists, and that's the way to fight terror. How you, you've said that Israel can't ignore what happened on October 7th, but what is the response that you think would be appropriate? That's a very hard question to say the truth. And here I'm not very clear. Because I totally agree that after such a take, you cannot just say, okay, let's go on, nothing happened. You cannot do it. Even if it's not very clever to go for war, or to attack, or to bomb, even if it's not leading to nowhere. I mean, states don't do it. No state would have done it. Just say, okay, you killed 1,200 people, you raped, you, you took hostages, you, you did horrible things, and we will just uh, sit still. So I understand this, even though I'm sure that this war will not lead to anywhere and will not solve anything, and will just create new problems and new hatred. But I understand the sentiment, it's almost a primitive sentiment, that you have to do something. If your neighbor comes and, and I don't know what, explode your apartment, at least you go to the police. You cannot just say, okay, no, no problem, I continue my life. Nothing happened. No, you can't do it. And the question is, how far should you go? And at any price, at, at which price? The problem is that most Israelis think that now we can go as far as we want at any price. And if you ask them, okay, you killed 20,000 20, Palestinians, most of them innocent people. You killed 5,000 children, maybe 7,000, all of them innocent children. What about it? So, and how far will you get? I wrote in my piece yesterday, if it will be 100,000 Palestinians, and if it will be 1 million Palestinians, and the average Israeli will tell you it will take what it will take. 
And with this, I cannot live in peace because this is really outrageous. I want to read for you uh, something from a new investigation by 972 Magazine, which is uh, based inside Israel. It's a joint magazine of Israelis and Palestinians. The article is called A Mass Assassination Factory Inside Israel's Calculated Bombing of Gaza. And this is um, sub somewhat it says, compared to previous Israeli assaults on Gaza, the current war has seen the army significantly expand its bombing of targets that are not distinctly military in nature. These include private residences, as well as public buildings, infrastructure, and high-rise blocks, which sources say the army defines as power targets. In Hebrew, that's matarot otsem. The bombing of power targets, according to intelligence sources, who had firsthand experience, is mainly intended to harm Palestinian civil society, to create a shock that, among other things, will reverberate powerfully and lead civilians to put pressure on Hamas, as one source put it. Several of the sources uh, said that the Israeli army has files on the vast majority of potential targets in Gaza, including homes, which stipulate the number of civilians who are likely to be killed in an attack on a particular target. Th this number is calculated and known in advance to the army's intelligence units, who also know shortly before carrying out an attack roughly how many civilians are certain to be killed. So that's this article saying, and they're citing sources inside the Israeli army and intelligence services that Israel knows when it's bombing Gaza that even has a precise estimate of how many civilians it's going to be, it's going to kill, but proceeds anyway. I'm just wondering your response to that. Israel doesn't deny it this time. Israel doesn't deny it even, doesn't bother to deny it. You see, they claim, the army claims that uh, Israel killed 5,000 Hamas uh, fighters, which leaves another 15,000 innocent. Israel doesn't deny this, this figure. Now, you don't kill 15,000 people without having an intention to do so. This cannot be 15,000 uh, accidents. 15,000 errors. No, no. I'm very sure, I'm not a military expert, but I'm very sure that you were just re reading now is very precise. When they tear down those buildings, one <clears throat> building after the other, they know very well that they are killing children and babies and old people and sick people and, and, and everyone. They know it very well and they ignore it. Can you um, respond to Giora Elan's statement that severe epidemics in the south of the Gaza Strip will bring victory closer and reduce casualties among IDF? Um, he also said that they're not at war with just Hamas, but, quote, all the civilian officials, including hospital directors and school directors and also the entire Gaza population. What is your response to that? I know you wrote an article about that. What's your response to that? And does that imply that this is genocide? Let's put things in context first of all. Giora Island there is not an extremist general. He's one of the more appreciated thinking generals. I would say he's center-right, but not more than this. He's not Ben Gvir and not Smotrich. He's quite mainstream. He was brought up in a moshav. 
labor, he got all the education by labor. He is really the, the, the center of Israel, I would say. And he writes this article, which those proposals, let's put it on the table, those proposals are Nazi proposals. Nothing else but Nazi. You cannot define it no other way. When you prefer epidemics over fighting and you, you make it as a recommendation, let's go for it. It will save lives of soldiers. This is a Nazi proposal. And the mainstream newspaper publishes it and he writes it. And except of me, nobody had any anything to say about it. It passed like nothing. A colonel in the an ex-colonel in the in the Air Force wrote me the other day, he's his friend, your island's friend. And he told me uh, he regrets writing it after I wrote my article. He regrets writing it. So I told him he will make a great service to himself if he will just say it somewhere or write it somewhere that he regrets it. Mm. He never did. And it shows where the Israeli society stands today. If you pay solidarity, express solidarity or empathy, with the killed children of Gaza, you might be arrested in Israel. Not you might be. People were arrested just for having empathy to the killed children. But if you suggest Nazi ideas, nobody cares. That's uh, political correctness. This is the new Israeli political correctness. And what else can you call it if not calling for genocide? I mean, goes without saying. Speaking of uh, things that have been made arrestable offenses, uh, Ben Gavir said, uh, my instructions are clear. There are to be no expressions of joy. This is vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the released Palestinian prisoners. Sure. Expressions of joy are equivalent to backing terrorism. Victory celebrations give backing to those human scum for those Nazis, and he told the police to implement this policy with an iron fist. Uh, why and and how has this been implemented so far? It was implemented and how? Mainly in East Jerusalem, because in East Jerusalem, the Israeli police is uh, uh, responsible for, for the security. They came to all the homes of the released uh, prisoners and warned them. They didn't let them gather together. They didn't let them raise flags or, or, or any kind of posters. It was really, as I wrote, a, a police of emotions. You are not allowed to be happy. In the West Bank, it's a little harder because there the army had to do it. And in many cases, the army came and prevented any celebrations. And here I must, again, also to... Uh, to put your attention to the fact that the Israeli media is hardly talking about the release of, of the prisoners. Another thing which it's totally ignored here, those are also human beings who came out from jail, part of them political prisoners, part of them children, part of them uh, administrative detainees who, who were never brought to court. 
And part of them did some things, obviously, but paid the price. In any case, they are human beings as well, and their families, for sure, are innocent people. And we will not show it on Israeli TV. And once when they showed it for 10 seconds, maybe, one of those places, a quite respectful uh, reporter on one of the main channels immediately reacted on camera. Why do you show it? Why do you show it? You shouldn't show it. That's Israel 2023. I was surprised that Israel, I saw a, a report talking about the treatment of the hostages. The, the released uh, hostages were saying that they were not treated badly, that they, by Hamas, that they didn't have a lot to eat, but that they were given their medicines when they could access it. And of course, there's that woman in her 80s who had been released who recounted similar things, and she was kind of vilified. And these people have been told not to talk. So what do we know about the treatment? The truth is we know nothing. And Israel prevents us from knowing. They claim that it has to do with the future uh, releases of hostages. And even the families tell very little Yesterday, there was a 16-year-old girl released together with her dog. Imagine yourself this, 55 days with your dog. I mean, how terrible can the conditions be if they let her stay with her pet? But it's very hard for me to say anything when I don't know. Mm. Because here and there you hear also, first of all, the conditions are very hard. Not enough food, because there is not enough food also for, for the guards. Secondly, very bad conditions. Hardly toilets, no beds, sleeping, old people slept on chairs. I mean, I don't, by all means, I wouldn't say that this was a, a resort place, yeah? But how cruel were they? I don't know. We don't know until today, Gilad Shalit, who was five years in Hamas prison, when he was released, we all wanted to know how was it for him. He would never talk until this very day. And I really don't know. I really don't know what's the truth. Uh, I know very well how we treat the prisoners, the Palestinian prisoners, and especially after Ben Gvir gave new instructions and they are really hold, held, being held in terrible, terrible conditions, being held in terrible conditions especially in the times of war. But I don't know enough to say. I, I have my guesses. It cannot be so horrible but because they all look well. Mentally, they are not very well, I guess. But physically, they all, until now, until now, don't forget, we didn't see the soldiers. I don't know what they went through. We didn't see the men. But those we saw until now looked very reasonable, very reasonable. But I, I wouldn't go far than this because I, Practically don't know. And what else are Palestinians telling you, the Palestinians you visit? What do you what what do you think it's important for American audiences and Israeli audiences to know about what Palestinians are experiencing in the West Bank, where you have been? First of all, politically, and I say it for many years, I never made a, a poll. And it's not systematic. But I can tell you that many more Palestinians that I met want to live together with the Jews in equality, in justice, but are ready to live with the Jews. 
most of the Israelis that I know, including the leftists, wants separation. We are here, they are there. So that's, first of all, a difference in their sentiments. Obviously, there is a bigger majority for the one-state solution among the Palestinians rather than among the Israelis, who for them it's unacceptable at all. Now, what any American or Israeli should know is that nothing, but nothing, in our lives, in your lives, looks the same like someone in your same age, same social economical background in the West Bank. And we are not speaking about the cage of Gaza, we are speaking about the West Bank. And we are not speaking about times of war, but the routine. The routine of the occupation is the most cruel one. Because at any given moment, the army can penetrate to your home, mainly at night, with dogs, wake the whole house up, make a search without any legal supervision, obviously, at any moment. The army is, is the raids are every night, everywhere. At any given moment, you can be arrested with reason, without reason. At any given moment, your parents can be humiliated in front of you and children can be beaten in front of you. This can happen at any moment. And above all, you can, your life is so cheap and you can be so easily shot at any circumstance. You don't have to do much in order to be shot. I mean, if you drive a little, they can claim that it's a little suspicious. Again, I saw this video from Kalandia. They are, the police immediately say they were driving in a wild way. I saw the video. They are driving so carefully, so slowly. And one car after the other, they just shoot tens of, of, of bullets, live bullets into the cars and kill everyone in the car. So life is in terrible danger, but what is much worse than this is the, the lack of dignity. You know that any 18-year-old soldier can do with you whatever he wants. And same for, for an armed settler. He can do to you whatever he wants and nothing will happen to him. You are really in your hands and, and maybe that's the most important point, you are totally helpless. You have no one to come to save you. No, I mean, everyone in every other society in the world can call a police, can call an ambulance, can call soldiers, army, someone to come and guard you, protect you. Palestinians have no protection whatsoever. And that's a way of life. I'm not speaking about the economy, which is terrible, intelligence, young people have who, who studied in university, graduated universities, have no jobs. They might smuggle into Israel with a degree in philosophy, in literature, in engineering, in law. And they would work in good times, in constructions in Israel, being humiliated, being arrested very often. I mean, life has no perspectives for anything. And everything we said here is so much better in the West Bank than in Gaza. Final question for me, and thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You said um, in a debate over the one state, you said that 
cynically all the people who say now that they're in support of a two-state solution when it's not possible were the same people who opposed the two-state solution when it was possible. And you say that we you are in a one-state solution in a one state right now. It's just that it's a one state with an apartheid system. Right. Can you explain to people um, who don't understand this why a two-state is now impossible? In the West Bank, there are over seven, West Bank and East Jerusalem, there are over 700,000 Jewish settlers. Part of them are armed. All of them are represented in Israeli politics as the strongest political pressure group. They have ministers, they have members of parliament, they have high officers in the army, in the media, everywhere. They are a very well-organized, very powerful group in Israeli society. There is no reality in which anyone will be able to evacuate them from their settlements. 700,000 people you cannot evacuate. If you don't evacuate them, there is no viable Palestinian state. Anyone who had visited the West Bank understands that there is no room, no room. You cannot drive in the West Bank more than 10 minutes without seeing another settlement. What will be, what kind of Palestinian state will it be when in every corner there, there is an armed, militant, violent outpost? Who is going to, to challenge it? And how will it be a Palestinian state with 700,000 settlers? So there are all kinds of ideas. We will build tunnels and bridges and, and evacuate some of them. I don't believe in them. Because if we want a real lasting peace, it must be a just one. And if we want a Palestinian state, it must be a viable one. I'll give you another example. Israel and everyone applauds and agrees to it, demands that this will be a demilitarized state. Why should the Palestine be a demilitarized state? Why? Don't they have the right to protect themselves? Why Israel can have any weapon in the world and the Palestinians have no right to have any weapon when they will have a democratic state for, of their own? And what does it mean that they, don't, that they are demilitarized? It means that Israel can do whatever it wants. So it's not a state. So all this will not lead to anywhere. Not to speak about the fact that with the Palestinian state, you don't solve the main issue of the right of return. You don't touch it at all. You don't solve anything. It will be like the Oslo Accords, another interim agreement. It will not last. I'm looking for something which will last. What is lasting already for the last 55 years is a one state. We are all living in one state. A refugee in Jenin and a shepherd in Hebron and me in Tel Aviv, we live under the same regime, under the same authority, the government and the military of Israel. He is more under the military, I am more under the government, but finally we are living in the same state. He's using the same currency that I use. He, he is registered the Ministry of Interior exactly like I do. He is living under Israel, like me, under the state of Israel. So the one state is here. The only problem is its regime. And its regime is anything but democracy. I will not get into it because it's late, but 
It looks like apartheid. It behaves like apartheid. It is apartheid. I know, I don't know anyone who went to the West Bank, saw a settlement, a Jewish settlement on one side, a Palestinian village next by. The Jews have all the rights in the world. The Palestinians next by have no rights whatsoever and will be able to call it in any other name but apartheid. And Unless they're liars. Sure. So, you know, uh, uh, this reality can last forever, can last forever, or we will start to turn it into a democracy, equal democracy between the sea and the river. One person, one vote, equal rights. Yes, it is the end of the dream of the Jewish state. It's not my dream, but it's many people here. It was their dream. It is end of Zionism, obviously. I don't underestimate it. It is also the end of the dream of the Palestinians to have their own state. But I don't recall any other solution for the long run. We are doomed to live together and we better live together in equality and not in an apartheid system. Well said. Thank you so much. It was really my pleasure. You are wonderful. I must tell you, both of you are so knowledgeable. Right. Your questions were such great pleasure for me because I've interviewed in the last six weeks so many times and your questions were the best, seriously. Oh, wow. Thanks. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, you so much. Yeah. a lot. Always great to hear from Gideon Levy, one of the few prominent Israeli voices left who are calling out Israel's brutality, calling out the occupation. And as he discussed, Israelis like him are few and far between. And it's just, it's a stunning thing to witness that a voice like his who can recognize what Israel's doing is just, it's so rare now in Israel. And so lonely. All right, everyone, thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For extended episodes, bonus content, and our weekly Thursday Throwdown episode, please subscribe at UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. Support the show for free by subscribing on YouTube, Rumble, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and review. You can also follow us on Twitter at UsefulIdiotPod. Thanks for supporting independent media. We'll see you next time. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.